Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Daryl Hagel. Daryl was present during the Siege of Magdeburg in May 1631, and he somehow managed to escape with his life. Well done, Herr Hegel. This, of course, is all a lie, but if you would like me to lie about you, you know where to go. Head over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. More on that later, but for now, enjoy the show. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 53 of the 30 Years War. Thanks so much for joining me today, and thanks also for listening to the episode that came out just before this on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I really appreciate your feedback on it, and by all accounts, you guys really enjoyed my somewhat unscripted, very salty, very passionate take on the event. It's very difficult to look at what's happening in Ukraine right now, And not feel disheartened, not feel upset, not feel like the world's going to hell in a handbasket, to borrow Mike Duncan's phrase. But at the same time, what was ever achieved by worrying? And sometimes it is actually quite helpful to escape into a different time, a different period of history, one which is somehow less troubling than our own, the Thirty Years' War. Last time, Gustavus's winding journey through early 1631 was examined. We saw the Swedish strategic position take shape. An agreement with France with the Treaty of Barvaldo was critically important, as was the decision taken among the Protestant German potentates to forge ahead with the Leipzig Manifesto and defend their lands as a neutral third party, complete with 40,000 men paid for by monies meant for the empire. These were all significant developments, and things were certainly underway in the spring of 1631, But even as Gustavus sacked Frankfurt on the Oder, and Tilly worked to gather as many of Wallenstein's old soldiers as he could, it was plain that things wouldn't seriously change until the great showdown between Sweden and the Empire took place. Until that occurred, there could be no telling the full extent of the impact of the Lion of the North's invasion. Before that could occur, though, the attentions of Count Tilly moved towards a city of great history and tradition, Magdeburg. It would be fair to say that Magdeburg captures the central theme of this podcast and of the book which accompanies it. For the record, 
that book, For God or the Devil, A History of the Thirty Years' War, is being remade into a two-volume second edition with a actual functioning ebook and also audiobooks to match. So stay tuned for those coming out later in the year, and I'll be sure to let you know when they're actually available, because trust me, I'm really looking forward to doing them. You should also know that Warfare in the Age of Matchlock, a essentially taking the 17th century warfare section out from the Forgot of the Devil book, will be coming out in a separate volume. So yes, that 1200 page count of the Thirty Years' War will be turned into three more digestible, manageable accounts of the Thirty Years' War and the era and the warfare within it, etc, etc. I'm really looking forward to it, so again, stay tuned. I hope you'll allow that little side note there. But For God or the Devil was the choice which Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden laid down before his peers. It was also a choice which actors had been making long before the Swedish king had landed in Pomerania. Due to a combination of factors, as we'll see, Tilly felt compelled to break into Magdeburg. The impact of this decision wasn't felt merely on the unfortunate citizens of Magdeburg itself, but also on the tone of what was becoming the Thirty Years' War. It changed the narrative and compelled both sides to prepare more intensively for the great showdown which came in September 1631 on the battlefield of Breitenfeld. Without any further ado then, I will now take you to that terrible scene of Magdeburg. Before I recognise the Papist League and call it master, I'd rather run into the blaze, refuse to dance with Charles V, I'll stand no more from Tilly too, and chase the bloodhound through my fire. Ancient German bravery, arm yourself for valiant strife, earn the crown of constancy, innocent, chaste maiden, I, tormented by the bloodhound dire, many a mother's child roasted on the fire, for suffered martyrdom, cologne on the Rhine, lauds eleven thousand virgins, I mourn thirty thousand souls, it must pain any feeling heart, that babes still suckling on the breast, by cruel foe, into the flames are cast, the one dear Swedish hero true, gave me tons of gold coin too, I praise his name to all the world, but those who him no passage gave, and severed him from all succour, must now look to their property, Bremen, Brunswick, through the foe's cunning, towards Nuremberg too the Bavarian blasts, Hamburg and Saxony are the last, the Bavarian speaks pretty words, but with his troops he strides ahead, putting all Lutheran folk to the sword, awake thou German honesty, and take up arms in my strife, thou shalt be praised eternally. This was how a poet, likely a former resident of Magdeburg, described the scene both at Magdeburg and in the Empire as a whole by late 1631. Numerous references are peppered throughout the poem. The Papist or Catholic League constituted a major military arm of the Emperor after the dismissal of Wallenstein. Tilly was a clear reference to Count Tilly, the Imperial Generalissimo, the Swedish hero True, referred to not Gustavus Adolphus, but Dietrich von Falkenberg, the Hessian soldier turned Swedish military representative, which Gustavus had sent to Magdeburg in the spring, once he realised he wouldn't be able to reach that city in time. The Bavarian referred to Maximilian, the Duke, now Elector of Bavaria and the Palatinate, who else, the Emperor's most important ally. 
Few contemporary works capture as eloquently the sheer trauma and pain of the sack of Magdeburg or the rank divisions which pervaded the empire. This was a call to resist and for all Protestants to refrain from trusting Bavarians, Tilly or any other Catholic figures. Those 11,000 virgins and 30,000 souls which had been slain underlined the fact that Magdeburg had been a grand and populous city, but there was another side to Magdeburg other than its wealth and importance. It was a centre of Protestant learning and worship, with a rich history of religious independence and opposition to imperial rule in Germany. In fact, as one author wrote, Magdeburg tried to rise in a revolutionary spirit, and so became almost the centre of the entire revolutionary opposition in Germany, and its monstrous destruction proved to be an event of all German significance, claiming the attention of all the publicists and newspapers, and all contemporaries near and far. But what was Magdeburg? If you read For God or the Devil, Magdeburg is the first city we encounter in the opening section of that book, where the merchant's son, Friedrich Fries, recalled how hell itself was poured upon the city, and how Magdeburg was sacked and set alight. Friedrich Fries and his family escaped only thanks to the timely arrival of sympathetic German soldiers, who offered them protection, but others were not so lucky. For Magdeburg, the punishment consisted of destruction, from which the city never truly recovered. While details of its trade with its neighbours are scarce, we do know that Magdeburg brewed beer and exported it to its neighbours, that it was an important trading centre up the River Elbe, that a substantial portion of East German trade moved through the city's walls as well. This made Magdeburg a wealthy city, but also a divided one. The war had exacerbated the class tensions within the city, as the wealthy patricians clashed with the merchant burghers, who themselves clashed with the poorer plebeian classes. The latter group, consisting of fishermen, dockers, boatmen and other so-called ship folk who relied on the River Elba for their livelihood, found that the privations of war had wrecked the river trade. Thus wrecked, It's all the same if we die of hunger, became one of many radical rallying cries of this beleaguered lower class, and preachers or other unemployed malcontents began to whip them into a frenzy. External events only contributed to the tension. In late 1629, following a failed effort by Wallenstein to besiege Magdeburg, representatives from the Hanseatic League cities of Lübeck, Hamburg, Bremen, Brunswick and Hildesheim supported the merchant burger classes to overthrow the more moderate patricians and dominate the city of Magdeburg with a new town council. The inhabitants of Magdeburg were further moved to conflict by the need to remove all imperialists from the surrounding regions of the city. Bands of peasants and unemployed fishermen rampaged through the countryside, ridding the surrounding small towns, villages or monasteries of the emperor's men. But the task was mostly incomplete, as only a properly supplied army could fully accomplish this challenging task. Thus, the three classes withdrew behind Magdeburg's walls and into their own petty squabbles. The patrician nobility escaped if they could or joined the city's defence. The burghers monopolised their control over the city and the lower classes became more radical. In August 1630, Gustavus Adolphus sent one of his most outstanding military aides, the aforementioned Dietrich von Falkenberg, to advise the city. In Gustavus's mind, Magdeburg was the advanced post and base of the whole expedition, and he instructed Falkenberg, 
to encourage the administrator of the city to form some regiments to secure the city for Sweden, and in this way prepare a diversion by means of which we can take control of the Elbe. This diversion will inspire the disaffected elements and support them in denying the imperialists all form of payment. In short, it will light a torch from which the flames of universal revolt will spread all across Germany. By that time, imperial troops had appeared outside the city limits, and Count Tilly began to make his presence felt, placing the city under a full siege by March 1631. Thanks to the role Magdeburg played in the religious wars of the 1550s, including its resistance to the entreaties of the Emperor and Maurice of Saxony, the city came to be viewed by its inhabitants as Our Lord God's Chancellery, a rebellious centre of Lutheran Protestantism in the north of the Holy Roman Empire, which had stood up well to the Emperor. While Magdeburg had fallen to the Emperor Charles V in 1551, this had occurred only after a long siege, and only once the rest of Protestant Germany had been moved to resist. Magdeburg, to many Germans, was the spiritual and traditional centre of Protestantism in the Empire, and it was therefore essential for Gustavus that he claimed the friendship of this symbolic relic, at a time when he was attempting to pose as Protestant Germany's champion. As early as August 1630, then, the citizens of Magdeburg were being prepared, if not for martyrdom, then certainly for resistance and great sacrifice. The city's fate, according to some of the radical burghers and peasants led by the Lutheran clergy, was inextricably interwoven with God's plan of salvation and the life to come. It was also predicted that Magdeburg would be captured and destroyed by a Catholic antichrist as divine punishment. Encouraged to see parallels between their experiences and those of Jerusalem by their clergy, the rhetoric and atmosphere in Magdeburg became more apocalyptic and intense. May God mercifully prevent this from being an evil omen and Magdeburg from going the way of Jerusalem, said Dr. Reinhard Bake in his Sunday sermon at Magdeburg Cathedral on the 1st of August 1630. On that Sunday he preached from the text, prescribed from Luke 19, 42-44, in which, if you didn't know, Christ predicts the downfall of the city of Jerusalem with the following words. For the days shall come upon you, when your enemies will cast up a bank about you, and surround you, and hem you in on every side, and dash you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. The arrival of the Swede, Falkenberg, in the same month, sharpened the rhetoric, but also brought practical benefits. The old Protestant administrator, Christian William, was reinstalled, after being removed from Magdeburg following the passage of the Edict of Restitution. Christian William was determined to work with the Swedes, and was confident that Gustavus would relieve the city before it could be taken by the imperialists. There was a sound strategic reason for installing Christian William in Magdeburg, though. Access to the city was blocked by the lands of those two stubborn Protestant electors, John George of Saxony and George William of Brandenburg. Those two electors had yet to declare themselves for the Swedish invader, though they had committed to raise an army of 40,000 men for their own defence. If Gustavus really wanted to reach Magdeburg, he would first need to be granted passage through these determinately neutral electors, and it was therefore fortunate that Christian William, the administrator of Magdeburg, also happened to be the uncle of the Brandenburg elector.
Surely for the sake of his kin, George William of Brandenburg would permit Gustavus access through his lands, and the Saxon elector would follow his example? Alas, Gustavus was to be disappointed. Alas, if Gustavus had expected any radical alteration in the mood of the two electors, he was to be disappointed. George William, after all, was his own brother-in-law, and if the elector of Brandenburg wouldn't permit his own brother-in-law access on that basis, then the elector's uncle could hardly have been persuaded to move him. In truth, of course, both the Saxon and Brandenburg electors quaked at the very thought of having to pick a side, and both wished desperately to maintain their neutrality to avoid the privations of war and avoid risking their positions. It was dangerous to throw caution to the wind and declare for the foreign invader. The prospects of those that had done so in the past spoke for itself now. No, the only way they would be moved to declare for Gustavus would be if the emperor forced their hand through a terrible policy decision, another terrible policy decision, or if Gustavus's position became so insurmountable and so immediately threatening to them that they felt they had no choice. As it happened, both such eventualities were to come to pass and would move the two electors to actually pick Gustavus's side over the following months. In the meantime, though, matters did not stand still in Magdeburg while the two electors stood by, and nor could Gustavus afford to remain idle. To force George William of Brandenburg's hand, Gustavus captured the Brandenburg fortress of Spandau, a few kilometres west of Berlin, in early May 1631, and he attempted to buy Magdeburg time by intimating to Falkenberg, who was then entrenched in the city's domestic politics, that the Hessian commander had to hold out for another two months. In two months, perhaps, the Swedish king would be able to overcome the opposition of the two electors and come to its rescue like a new messiah. Within Brandenburg, though, a different kind of prophecy seemed to be playing itself out. Before we continue the story of Magdeburg, I want to let you know about something which you are surely aware of by this point, but just in case you're not, I am currently in the process of nearly finishing the second installment of my historical fiction series set during the Thirty Years' War. The series is called Matchlock, and it follows Matthew Locke, an expert in all things musketry, who's investigating the murder of his parents and his brother in the early 1620s. To accomplish this mission, Matthew Locke must rely on some unruly individuals, including a resentful, exiled son of an Irish Gaelic chieftain, and several other unscrupulous, brutal rebels and soldiers. Matchlock and the Embassy, the first instalment of this series, was released back in September, and I had, of course, originally planned to release the sequel much earlier than now, but, you know, PhD tends to kind of suck up all my time. So I'm very happy to, well, not necessarily announce, but at least attempt to predict that the sequel to Matchlock and the Embassy, Matchlock and the Rebel, will be coming out in the next month or so. Okay, let me put it this way. It will definitely be out before the month of April is at an end. If you're unaware, those supporting this podcast on Patreon at the $5 level or above will be able to get a free ebook copy of Matchlock and the Rebel once it's released. But if you do not have the money or the time to support this show on Patreon, you should know that in the next few weeks I'll be offering my email list the chance to get an advanced review copy, which basically means you will read the book and give me an honest review. If that sounds like something you'd be interested in, click on the link in the description below to sign up to that email list. 
I promise I won't send you any emails unless I have something actually worthwhile to talk about. Those that are supporting this podcast on Patreon are literally making my PhD possible. Without you guys, I'd never be able to do these two or three things at the same time. And I particularly appreciate it because I know I said I would release that Patreon series for Britain Goes to War, but once again, PhD is sucking up all my time. It appears as though I may have underestimated just how much time this thing would take. I mean, who could have thought it would take so long? But having said that, there are some things that I have unearthed in my research, which I'll be happy to share with you guys soon. So maybe for the moment, $5 level supporters and above, history friends as they're called, you guys will get some extra PhD research thrown your way just to keep you fed and watered. Whatever way you choose to support this podcast, guys, whether it's through Patreon, by sharing some of my social media stuff, or just listening to the show and telling other people about it, I appreciate it so much. I really, really do. Thanks for letting me do this, and thanks as well for your patience. Now let's go back to Magdeburg. It would be better not to leave one stone upon another than to submit to the Emperor, went one of the many uncompromising proclamations of the increasingly radicalised leaders of the Magdeburg citizens, a former brewer in this case, who had been ruined by the conditions of the war, and he was not alone. While it would be hyperbole to suggest that a kind of class war had set in within Magdeburg, it was certainly the case that the tensions between the major classes had increased. This was only to be expected as the imperialists closed in, and as news of Gustavus's efforts reached the citizens. Many citizens insisted that Gustavus would relieve Magdeburg, and that to surrender would represent the greatest shame and a betrayal of the city's history. By mid-May 1631, the city had been under siege for close to two months, and in the space of that time opinions had only solidified. Late in the evening of the 18th of May, recalled by Otto von Gerich, one of the city's councillors, it appeared that the citizens of Magdeburg were on the verge of making some sort of decision. The council summoned the entire citizenry in their districts and asked whether they should negotiate with General Tilly. The majority in some districts favoured negotiation, some simply left it to the council to decide, while others, especially those who had promoted this business from the outset, refused all talks expecting help from the King of Sweden at any moment. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. On the afternoon of the 19th of May, Garrick recorded that he climbed a bell tower to gain a better view and noted that the imperialists were preparing a final assault on the city's battered defences. The immediate threat that this posed, the exhausted state of the defenders and their want of powder convinced Garrick to appeal to the city council and negotiate with Tilly to save Magdeburg from disaster. The council, Garrick recorded, thought the negotiations with Tilly should begin and a trumpeter was sent to announce this to the general. In the midst of this decision though, who should burst into the room but Gustavus's representative, Dietrich von Falkenberg. Falkenberg, Garrick recalled, Interrupted with high-flown assurances of the long-promised relief of the King of Sweden, he urged them again to stick to their promises and to trust him. He declared the danger was not really as acute as they believed. Since relief was only hours away, each hour more they resisted was worth more than a ton of gold. He continued this way for almost an hour. Falkenberg replied that he wanted the imperialists to attack, since they would be resisted and would suffer badly. Then he continued his speech until the lookout at the St. Johannes Church Spire blew the alarm and unfurled the White War banner. After debating the issue throughout the night of the 19th to the 20th of May, it seems the decision whether to resist or surrender was made for the people of Magdeburg by its besiegers. Unsure of his security and doubtful, but not willing to rule out the possibility that Gustavus might relieve the city, Count Tilly was persuaded by one of his subordinates to attack Magdeburg. On the morning of the 20th of May, as Falkenberg attempted to buoy the morale of the councillors, a ration of wine had been given to the attackers to boost their morale before the onslaught began. As Garrick's account reveals, the city's defences were extremely worn down following two months of protracted siege, and the mission of the 2,500 soldiers and 2,000 citizens charged with the defence was virtually hopeless. Yet, perhaps the greatest disadvantage of the defenders was that they had been taken by surprise. Perhaps the city's councillors had expected a final opportunity for parley before the attack was launched. This might help to explain Falkenberg's confidence and declarations that Gustavus was hours away, when in reality, the Swedish king was camped 90 kilometres from the city. At 8am on the 20th of May, reports that the first soldiers had burst through the city's north gate was learned of, as Croat auxiliaries, the more feared of the imperialist troops, traversed the shallow Elbe River to break through a poorly defended side gate. Panic spread quickly, almost at the same pace as the fires which started under mysterious circumstances. Much as Napoleon would erroneously be blamed for torching Moscow, so too would Count Tilly be blamed by Protestant propagandists for mercilessly burning Magdeburg. It was an appealing message for the Protestant diehards, but the reality was more complex and probably a great deal less exciting. In the chaos of the sacking, which was undeniably terrifying and brutal for the city's inhabitants, fires began in isolated pockets of the city. By 10am that morning, after having licked at several burger houses, a gunpowder store was devoured by the blaze, which soon proved unstoppable. As the fires rampaged across the city, they forced back even the attackers, and Tilly attempted to save the cathedral, where some 1,000 citizens were taking refuge. 
another 600 took refuge in a monastery, and they were all left alone, but they were the lucky ones. An astonishing 1,700 of the city's 1,900 buildings were totally destroyed, leaving behind a horizon of charred rubble, which remained in place well into the 18th century. The usual horrors were visited upon Magdeburg's citizens as children as young as 12 were reported to have been raped. In the mad search for plunder which followed, even a pair of shoes would suffice, but for the soldiers who could find nothing, they often turned to drink or to violence. To receive mercy from these soldiers under the circumstances, who had been stationed outside Magdeburg for several months, was a tall order indeed. But a deliberate campaign of rape and violence commanded by Tilly this was not. We know this to be true, if for no other reason than that the destruction of Magdeburg denied Count Tilly any chance to rest and billet his men, or to wrest contributions from the citizens, then the major goal of the campaign. Indeed, what remained of Magdeburg after the ordeal of the 20th of May could provide no sustenance for Tilly's army. The burnt husk of a city which had once housed 25,000 souls now barely accommodated 5,000. Most of Magdeburg's citizens would flee in the aftermath, such as the aforementioned Friedrich Fries, who disguised himself as a peasant to avoid being captured for ransom. But as Fries watched his old home crumble into ashes, he would have known that Magdeburg had been effectively killed. A census taken in February 1632 revealed that only 449 citizens then lived in Magdeburg, a figure which leaves us to conclude that Whatever the controversy surrounding the event, the sack of Magdeburg must retain the distinction of being the most devastating and total act of the war. Twelve years into what would be the Thirty Years' War, the participants perhaps felt that few acts could shock or move them to action, but Magdeburg was such a shock, and if that city was never the same again, neither was the Empire. Among the dead was Dietrich von Falkenberg, who died early in the battle, and Christian William, the city administrator and uncle of the Elector of Brandenburg. Christian William's body was unceremoniously dumped in the River Elbe, along with several of the more recalcitrant councillors, whom the soldiers no doubt blamed for the siege. In the days that followed, though, it became difficult to receive accurate reports on what had occurred at Magdeburg, and even when those reports were received, some were reluctant to believe them. Prisoners brought here from Magdeburg report that the slaughter continued this morning and the city is completely burnt down, that no building remains but the cathedral. Recorded no less a figure than Christian II of Anhalt, the son of Christian of Anhalt, who had once stood by the side of Frederick V, the Elector Palatine and Winter King. Christian II of Anhalt had since made his peace with the Emperor, and his palace was situated nearby the slaughter. If this mighty and beautiful city has been destroyed in such short time and reduced ashes, Christian continued, it is much to be pitied and its downfall to be lamented. But Christian's pity only went so far. Within a few days, he had already begun to capture the difference in view between the two camps of opinion. To Protestants and to those allies of the Swedish king, Magdeburg was an atrocity without parallel in history, which would have to be avenged. But to the other side, it was a great victory, and the excesses of Tilly's men and the tragic outcome could therefore be excused. After making his peace with the emperor and regaining his lands, Christian II was eager to make plain, even in his personal diary, where his loyalties lay. 
I wrote once again in my own hand to General Tilly, thanking him warmly for his intercession and congratulating him upon his victory at Magdeburg, desiring a good peace in Germany, etc., Christian wrote, adding, It is said that the soldiers of Magdeburg initially fell out with the burghers, but that they were entirely innocent, whereas the citizenry, who were probably twelve times as numerous, made them do too much and would not give them any more bread, even for money. It is quite likely that other injustices, secret sins and acts of shame occurred, because the outcome suggests that such a beautiful, powerful city, which has flourished since the days of Emperor Otto I, could not have met with such an unexpected, rapid and terrible end without a particular reason. The sins of the land will mean many changes to the principalities. One should not, to be sure, judge by the outcome whether a matter be just or unjust, but it is sometimes permitted especially when one has gained knowledge of something of the unjust circumstances, which injustice then ravaged the land and people, General Tilly offered them, the people of Magdeburg, mercy on different occasions, but to no avail. Both sides inevitably worked to blame the other for the event, but at the centre of the disaster were the now homeless citizens of Magdeburg. May God have mercy upon us henceforth, recorded one former resident of the city. For this was a spectacle that has not seen its like in horror and cruelty in many hundred years, for it was beyond all measure. They drove small children into the fire like sheep, sticking them with spears. God knows Turks and barbarians would not have done otherwise. Just as the Emperor's men worked to portray the event as divine punishment, with weighty comparisons to the destruction of Jerusalem, very common, So too did the opposite side emphasise that God's judgement had been visited upon the citizens of this German Jerusalem. On the first anniversary of the event in 1632, a pastor and former resident of Magdeburg delivered a sermon wherein he declared, Let us learn that terrible things tend to happen when a city and fortress is not merely severely besieged by the foe, but also and finally captured by a furious hand. We have seen this in Jerusalem, in Magdeburg, and other great cities and fortresses which were taken by force. Another pastor from Hesse delivered the self-explanatory sermon in August 1631, entitled, Of the Destruction of Jerusalem, in Pitying Memory of the Destruction of the Ancient, Praiseworthy, Evangelical Christian City of Magdeburg. In his sermon, the destruction of Magdeburg was regarded as more cruel still than the destruction of Jerusalem, since this devastation of a city was the work not of unbelieving heathens of Babylon, but instead those who themselves wished to be considered the people of God, as if they were the best friends and protectors of our country. The battle lines were evidently being drawn, but there was a surprising lack of movement on the part of the pro-Swedish German broadsheets. The reports on these sheets, wrote the historian John Roger Paz, are surprisingly straightforward and uncritical of either side, and almost all end with an expressed desire for peace. One example Paz gives was a mostly neutral broadsheet, which ended with the familiar urging, Let Almighty God end all Christian bloodletting, comfort our troubled hearts, and give us all sweet peace. Amen. Scant use was made of the events at Magdeburg by German writers then, even though Swedish propagandists did work to emphasise the sins of the imperialists. The most important such communique which Gustavus released was in fact a new apologia, 
explaining why he had not reached Magdeburg in time. According to one account, the failure was grave indeed, for what it suggested about Gustavus's inability to defend his allies. It seemed for the moment as if the King of Sweden had come in vain. Loud and high were the accusations against him, raised by those who little understood the difficulties with which he had to contend. He seemed, for the moment, to both sides, to be merely a new Christian of Denmark, who would now only be too glad to wriggle out of the war, just as that monarch had done. The universal cry of joy raised in Catholic Germany, which, considering the odds against the city, was as ridiculous as it was indecent, and was echoed back by a wail of terror from the opposite party, and even the imperturbable Wallenstein on receipt of the news, is said to have hurled a piece of his table furniture at the head of the messenger with the words, It is a lie! Unsurprisingly, the Swedish king heaped blame for the failure upon the soldiers of the two Protestant electors, who Gustavus could now portray as having let their co-religionists down. It was too late for Magdeburg, Gustavus could claim, but there remained time for the two electors to redeem themselves. If they would not do so, however, the Swedish king was far more emboldened after the sack of Magdeburg to make the decision for them. With greater fury than ever before, he turned his full attention towards the elector of Brandenburg. Though his uncle lay dead in the River Elbe, the presence of the Swedish army in the outskirts of Berlin proved a far more persuasive inducement for George William to attach his banners to those of Gustavus Adolphus, though this process still took some time and was by no means harmonious, as we will see. It is often forgotten that among those to be inconvenienced by the destruction of Magdeburg was Count Tilly, who was earnestly relying on the stores of that city to revitalise and resupply his men into the summer, or at the very least, refresh their coffers with the demanded contributions. When only varying degrees of plunder was the reward, rather than a reliable supply of coin or food, Tilly would have known that the clock was ticking down for his men as well. The summer months would be gentle enough, but with the Swedish king waiting in the wings, it was imperative that the veteran Generalissimo reinforce his position and secure his supply lines before autumn and winter set in. It was in view of these aims that Count Tilly made perhaps his greatest but also understandable It was in view of these aims that Count Tilly made perhaps his greatest, but also arguably his most understandable, error. Seeing the waste which the war had inflicted upon the German lands around the Elbe and Oder rivers, Count Tilly turned his attention to the relatively untouched lands of the neutral and newly armed Protestant elector, John George of Saxony. Would the elector of Saxony disarm and provide Tilly with monies and food according to his emperor's will? It was time, at long last, for the indecisive John George of Saxony to make his choice. Would it be for God, or would it be for the devil? We will explore that very difficult choice in the next episode, History Friends, but for now, thanks so much for listening to this show. Take care, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Thank you. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.